second scripture reading this morning comes from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and to Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished speaking. James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letters. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, those who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, therefore, sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. 
So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. While we briefly attended a large Christian and missionary alliance church early on in our marriage, other than that, Tim and I have both always been Presbyterian, as have our children. But a number of years ago, my sister, who is a Lutheran now, we'll forgive her for that, (laughs) took my younger two kids to church with her. And I think it's great for our kids to get to churches with other styles and traditions and theology than the Presbyterian churches they are used to. But as I'm usually tied up on Sunday morning, it's hard to get them other places. I was excited that they would get to go to Sarah's church with her. They celebrated communion that morning, uh, just as we do many mornings. But communion at my sister's church isn't too different uh, from communion here. Uh, It's a sacrament. Children are welcome. We pray a lot. It's quite familiar in many ways. And while we uh, tend to pass the elements here or sometimes uh, participate by intinction, uh, where everyone comes forward and takes a piece of bread and dips it in the cup. Um, so when everyone was called up for the elements there at my sister's church, the kids knew what to do. They were still totally on board. Things seemed familiar. And they followed her dutifully up to the front for communion when their pew was ushered forward. And then they saw the wafers. <laughs> Being Presbyterian... Gloria and Levi had only seen little squares of shortbread or the giant common loaf used for intinction. Sometimes it would be a form of a pita or a flatbread, but they had never, ever seen communion wafers, those little flying saucers of bread-like something (laughs) that are used primarily in other denominations and very rarely in Presbyterian churches. And as the wafer was placed in Levi's hand, he looked at it, puzzled. Aunt Sarah, what is it? He stage whispered to her. And she said, it's the communion bread. And he looked at the wafer and he looked at the pastor and he looked at my sister. And she said, you eat it, Levi. She said she was just waiting for one of them to comment loudly about how it wasn't actually food, but both children, perfectly decent and in order, being Presbyterian and all, went along with it. And we had great conversations then later on about how different churches, especially those of different denominations, and even those who agree that it's a sacrament and not just a story retelling or a remembrance, we all celebrate communion a little bit differently. And that's true of so many church celebrations and activities, isn't it? Baptism, music style, elements of the worship service. If the pastor wears a clerical collar or not. If the pastor wears a robe or not. And decisions are made about these things for theological reasons. 
like the common loaf being a symbol of how we're all in this together through Jesus Christ, for pastoral reasons like it's hard for elderly or disabled folks to walk all the way to the front for communion, and sometimes for plain old practical reasons like I don't wear my robe in the summer because it's too darn hot in here in the middle of August for me to be standing up here sweating in the robe. But when our reasons for doing things the way that we do them are not periodically re-evaluated and regularly discussed theologically, pastorally, and practically, when they are taken for granted as the way we do it, these patterns and rules don't serve any real purpose. They become a sort of secret handshake that gets in the way of people from the outside being able to feel like they really know what's going on. They begin to drive people apart rather than bringing them together. I have never been more confused in a church service than the time that we attended a Russian Orthodox wedding. Every time they said, let us pray, these Presbyterians dutifully bowed our heads and sat down while everyone else stood up. Half of the service was in Russian, and it was full of wedding and church traditions that these Presbyterians had never seen before. We're lifelong churchgoers, and we had not a clue, and we felt very disoriented and out of the loop. If we'd been visiting there on a Sunday morning, we never would have returned because nobody explained any of it to us. So it just felt like weird old traditions we didn't understand. We didn't have any theological or cultural context for what was happening around us. These often unspoken rules about how things work can be disorienting, and they actually drive people away if we aren't sensitive to how that happens. This is the problem that we encounter in Acts 15. Some of the Christians who had converted from or through Judaism felt strongly that it was important to maintain Jewish customs, especially circumcision, in order to fully be a Christian. This was their theological history. It was a huge part of how they worshipped. They traveled without the sanction of the church from Jerusalem to Antioch, they being Paul and Barnabas, where the, or Paul and Silas, where the church was primarily made up of Gentile converts. The Gentile Christians didn't see anything, um, any need in particular for circumcision or kosher law in Jesus' teachings, and they argued that their salvation was in Christ, so they didn't need this anymore. The ones who were advocating this did think they were doing the right thing because all of their lives and through all of their generations, Kosher law had been what set them apart from other religions. It was what made them different. It was very dear to them. It was what made their God different from all the other gods. So it's understandable that they were hesitant to allow the new Gentile Christians into the fold without going through becoming full Jewish practicers first. But what these Folks, Paul often refers to as Judaizers, saw as sin, was really the Gentile church acting in the freedom from sin and law that we are all given in Jesus Christ. Breaking with the traditional law was not a sin. In fact, a little bit before this, in chapters 10 and 11, God gives Peter a very weird vision. 
in which God tells them it's okay for the Gentiles to eat whatever they want. They don't have to follow the old law that way. That law was given as a grace to the people. So using it as a means of judgment or exclusion is what was sinful. This became a pretty big conflict, so we get to see the church leaders, including Paul and Peter, get involved in the issue, having a council in Jerusalem to sort things out. And their statement about this situation was, in essence, this. Our actions matter, but they do not save us. The new Christians don't need to follow kosher law, but they do need to be sensitive to those for whom their practice of spirituality is bound up in keeping kosher. The Jewish Christians are free to continue to live out their freedom and the grace God gives through their circumcision and kosher law, and the Gentile converts need to be sensitive to that. In other words, the new guys do not have to worship the same as the old guard in order to be good Christians. And the old guard doesn't have to throw out all of their faithful traditions either. Both are called to work together and find common ground, honoring each other's faith, because both are saved by the same Jesus Christ and nothing else. Both are called to sacrifice something, to give up something for the sake of growth and unity. Notice they aren't told to worship separately, but to work together. In the days of the Acts, the budding church had to figure out new ways of living and being together as they reformed and reimagined what a faith community should look like. In the days after the Exodus, Moses and the Israelites had to work to figure out what community should look like for them in their new season together. Moses and the Israelites had to figure out how to lead and live together And later on in the early Jewish and Gentile Christians had to learn how to lead and live together. In these days, as we begin to move back toward more normal-looking worship and replant ourselves as a faith community after this pandemic, we need to learn how to lead and live together in ways that welcome in and include the community. Because we are entering into a new season, too, like the Israelites in Exodus and the early church in Acts. In our Christian arguments, those inevitable times that we disagree over what pleases God, how we should best worship, what laws we should worry about, we are asked to remember that it's about grace, not rules. We are to remember that love comes first because our God is a different kind of God, calling us to be a different kind of people. God gave the law not to condemn, but to help us find our way back to unity, to shalom, wholeness. We as the church can be a beacon of hope and acceptance and freedom. Warren Wearsby says this, Christians need to learn the art of loving compromise. They need to have their priorities in order so they know when to fight for what is really important in the church. It is sinful to follow some impressive member of the church who is fighting to get his or her way on some minor issue that is not worth fighting about. Every congregation needs a regular dose of the love described in 1 Corinthians 13 to prevent division and dissension. I agree with him, and I add that we need a regular dose of that love and compromise to prevent apathy and decline, as well as division and dissension. We need that dose of love and compromise to tear down the walls that keep people out of the Christian community. 
Love and compromise are different than cheap calls for unity we hear so many of these days. Love and compromise, say, we refuse to fall in line with the petty ways of judgment and exclusion that the world wants us to play by. Wearsby goes on to say, as we deal with our differences, we must ask, how will our decisions affect the united witness of the church to the lost? Because that's our business, after all, isn't it? Witnessing to the lost? I mean, if our business is just to be a social club, then by all means, we should only do the things we've always done. But we can't be surprised when that doesn't actually make any difference in the world around us. We can't be surprised when new converts or potential new community members don't want to stick around. When we demand they fit our molds and figure out our secret language on their own. We can't be shocked that people outside the club don't understand it. But if our business truly is that of fulfilling God's call to witness to the lost, then we should always be changing, always growing and flexing, finding new and fresh ways to celebrate old traditions and seasons and welcoming the new in among the old, never judging, always exploring, never excluding, always welcoming. When tradition becomes tradition for the sake of tradition, it is useless and sinful But when it's married to fresh, new life and theological and loving consideration of the entire community, it's a beautiful, new sacrifice to God. Thanks be to God. Amen.